everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Before we get into our show today, I just wanted to remind you to head on over to our website, thepathseries.com or path11productions.com to view our trailer of the third film coming out in June, The Path Evolution. We are also taking pre-orders for the film, both digital download and DVD. So we hope that you head on over and make a purchase there. And we are also going to be offering some special coupons and incentives to people who sign up for a newsletter. So we're going to be um, working pretty diligently on getting some newsletters out every week and a few over the month, but there will be some incentives there. So we'd like you to go ahead and sign up for our newsletter. Now, today we're going to be speaking with Chris Atwood who is co-author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Passion Test, The Effortless Path to Discovering Your Life Purpose and Your Hidden Riches, Unleashing the Power of Ritual to Create a Life of Meaning and Purpose. With his business partner and ex-wife, Janet Bray Atwood, he has built a global brand with over 1,500 Passion Test facilitators in more than 60 countries. Over the past 30 years, Chris has been CEO or senior executive of over 15 companies, including a secondary dealer in government securities. After resigning as president of the government securities dealer in the early 1980s, Chris took 10 years for his own inner development, spending 8 to 10 hours a day in deep meditation. During this time, he extensively studied the Vedic literature of India and the functioning of human consciousness. During the past 10 years, Chris has become one of the leading figures in the transformational industry, having put together some of the major strategic alliances in this industry, including his key role in arranging 70% of interviews for the book and movie phenomenon, The Secret, which has been viewed by an estimated 200 million people and sold over 20 million books worldwide. Chris is a founding member of the Transformational Leadership Council created by Jack Canfield, and we'd like to welcome him to our show today. Hi, Chris. Hi, April. How are you? I'm doing great. We're so excited to have you on here. Um, you know, one of uh, Mike's inspirations prior to creating some of our own documentaries was The Secret. And I know that you kind of played a role in arranging the interviews for the book and the movie. So it's really nice to kind of have that synchronicity come back around. And here we are, we're getting a chance to talk to you. And, you know, due to a documentary that really inspired both of us to go ahead with our project as well. Yeah, isn't that great? The, the synchronicity is a great quality of life, isn't it? It is. We love it. So you have some interesting stuff going on. Um, I know that you're the founder here of The Passion Test, and you also have an Indiegogo project going on called The Heaven on Earth Project. Uh, but before we get into some of that, I also know that you have some experience of doing some deep personal meditation yourself. And I know that our listeners would kind of like to hear about your journey and how that maybe helped to evolve some of your consciousness and bring you into the work that you're doing today. Well, that's fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, April. So um, it's interesting. You know, my father was a Lutheran minister. My mother was a nurse and then later a school nurse. And later she went on and got a Ph.D. in education and was teaching health educators. Um, but I, I so I grew up, uh, you know, going to church, being, you know, to the Lutheran church in particular and and felt a an affinity for for that quality of spirituality in in that uh, in those days and as I was growing up, but you know there came a point April when I was about just about time to go to college. Actually, I remember the first year in college, I was active in the Lutheran Students Association, and and 
at that time, I remember reading in the Bible this description of heaven and hell. And the literal description of those things didn't make much sense to me. Um, the idea that we could live for, uh, you know, sometimes a few moments or a few hours, uh, or we could live even 70 or 80 or 90 years, and then that would determine what we were going to experience for all eternity, which is the way I understood the teaching of heaven and hell um, in my in my church and in my religion, it, it seemed somehow out of balance. You know, it seemed, how could such a short time determine what would happen for all eternity? And, and so I, I became less involved in, in, the, uh, in the Lutheran Students Association. I became more involved politically. And in the, in the first year that I was in college, there were three riots. This was during the time of the Vietnam War, just to show my age. Uh, it was uh, around 1969, 1970. There were three riots to, in Isla Vista near UC Santa Barbara, where I was living. And I was 17 years old, and I kind of didn't know what was going on. But I remember there was a, a talk given by the attorney for the Chicago 7. And those who don't know what, who the Chicago 7 were, there was big demonstrations during the 1968 Chicago Democratic Convention, and a lot of young people, students and hippies and yippies, uh, demonstrated uh, at that convention. And some of them, seven of them, were arrested, and they became to be called the, the Chicago Seven. And, and uh, their attorney came and spoke at our college. And I remember the, the the football stadium at UC Santa Barbara had been shut down a couple of years prior because there wasn't enough student interest in football. It'll tell you a little bit about the school I went to, right? And uh, but uh, but when the when uh, the attorney for the Chicago Seven showed up, the entire stadium was packed, right? And I remember walking out of that, and he, of course, had gotten us all fired up and and uh, talking about justice and and fairness and so forth. And as I walked out of the stadium and walked across these soccer fields on the way back to the dorm room where I was living, I remember watching a 17, I counted them, 17 police cars came rolling into this little student community. Apparently, there had been an altercation downtown. And there was a lot of tension in the air, as you might guess. And, and so I wandered downtown later in that afternoon. I didn't know what was going on, but, um, but I wandered downtown and, and some friends said, the Bank of America's on fire. The Bank of America's on fire. Now, the Bank of America was this big, huge building that had been built in the middle of the student community surrounded by parking lots on one side and fields on the other side. And uh, someone, some protesters, some radicals, whoever they were, had taken uh, a, a log and, or something and bashed in the door and set the bank on fire. And when I got there, there were probably two, 3,000 students who were all arrayed watching the scene and as we watched a busload of policemen came into town on a on a yellow school bus and and also a, a police car with them and and about 50 policemen in full riot gear that means helmets and and shields and 
and but you know uh, batons and 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 bulletproof vests and the whole thing came marching across this field about about the length of a football field so you know 100 yards 300 feet or so they walked across they aligned themselves between the bank and the and the crowd and then they had apparently been told that there was someone inside which wasn't true but they went in to check and and you know the crowd was angry and the police you know some of them looked angry some of them looked scared i remember um the the that some of the the younger policemen looked kind of like not certain that they wanted to be there, you know, which I could completely understand. Uh, standing in front of three thousand screaming people wasn't so much fun. And at some point, the the captain or the person in charge told the this line of police to charge the crowd. So they charged the crowd and trying to push them back. I guess they felt they were getting too close. And and some of them stopped and were beating on some of the kids on the ground. And and then then they gathered back and they went and then the crowd got angrier and and shouting epithets and shout I know this is a long way from your question about meditation, but I'm gonna get there, believe me, April. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, um and uh, and they did they charged the crowd three times and after the third time the crowd was just furious because they weren't being very nice the police weren't being uh, being very nice about the whole thing the crowd wasn't being very nice the crowd was throwing rocks and bottles and finally after the third time the crowd just there was like this roar that erupted and they just charged these 50 policemen and the policemen just turned tail and ran as fast as they could back to their bus and the bus took off and and that, that was the first of what ended up being three riots like that or demonstrations, whatever you want to call them. They were more like riots because there were, you know, dumpsters set on fire and police cars set on fire. And it was a pretty intense situation. And I remember watching this. And during the second one, in fact, the bank was gone, but they put up a temporary bank. And some of the fraternity kids were trying to keep the crowd at bay and, and to calm everybody down. And a policeman mistook one of the fraternity kids that was standing on the the uh, the whatever it's called the the stairs uh, by the temporary bank and thought he was someone who was attacking the bank and shot him and killed him. And this is also around the time of Kent State when four students were killed in the demonstration. So this was kind of the environment of that time. And I remember thinking, you know, this is not the kind of world that I want to live in where no matter how righteous the cause, because, you know, there was uh, a lot to complain about in those days. There's always a lot to complain about if you choose to complain. Right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I remember thinking, this is not the world that I want to live in. And so uh, a group of us got together and we formed this kind of community organization, came to be called the Isla Vista Community Council. And we chose to elect some representatives to who would interact with the state and the county and the, and um, the university. They had no power. They, they, this was not a legal entity at all. But because they represented a group of people who were had some, some significant interest at that time, the university and the county, in fact, listened to them and the state as well and ended up allocating about $300,000 
for uh, a budget to help improve conditions in Isla Vista, because one of the complaints was not just the war in Vietnam, but that this student community had become a student ghetto by absentee landlords who didn't care for the place and so forth. And and I was, uh, about a year later, I was selected to be planning director of this uh, little community, of the Isla Vista Community Council. And I was 20 years old by this time. And and I didn't know what was going on, to be honest with you. I mean, I kind of had some idea. There was an architect from the university that had been loaned to to help with the planning process that we were in, in the midst of. But I remember just feeling like there was so much stress, so much to deal with. I didn't know how I was going to handle it. And the skin on my face was flaking off. I had indigestion constantly. And and I was like in such a bad sh- situation, such bad shape that I remember one of my friends saying, Chris, you got to meditate, man. This is, <laughs> you, you're like too uptight. And so I said, well, what's that? And so I had some friends who practiced transcendental meditation and, and they told me about it and told me to go to an introductory lecture. I went to a lecture. By now, there's something like 600 studies that have been done just on transcendental meditation, not counting all the other kinds of meditation that are in the world today. And and uh, but there's some of the first research had come out by then and and it was clear that there were physiological changes that took place the breath slowed the body settled down there was a change that was taking place and and there seemed to be positive results from it so i thought well it can't kill me it can't hurt me so i might as well give it a try that that was i was not what you would call a spiritual seeker abel <laughs> um and I remember from the first time I sat down and meditated, it had it was a profound effect. You know, it was really an experience I had never had before, of deep inner silence and and a deep settling. And, and so from that experience, I continued to meditate. Within a week, the flaking on my skin had gone away, the my indigestion had gone away. I was starting to feel happy again, and I. That was enough to keep me meditating twice a day going on. And then a year later, I went back and I had to prepare a a grant proposal outlining all the things we'd accomplished in the previous year. And we'd accomplished some major things. We'd gotten the entire community down zone so that it wouldn't be so overcrowded. We led a major campaign which is a whole story in of itself at the university, so the students could ride the buses, all the whole public uh, uh, system, just by for a fee that they added to their student fees. So, you know, we increased the number of people using public transportation by triple or quadruple during that year, and added a lot of parks and built, uh, actually dug up the, the middle of streets and made them into little parks so that people would drive around the community instead of through it. A whole lot of things like that, and I remember thinking, man, there's no way I could have done all this if I hadn't been meditating. And so meditation had a really profound effect on me. And, and I had the, the kind of results in my life to, to see it. And I went on and I, I later became a teacher of transcendental meditation. And uh, then I, I was involved in a variety of businesses and at one point uh, became president of a secondary dealer in government securities and was running that company and really got pretty tired and burned out. And And a point came where it just didn't make sense for me to continue. And um, so I resigned my position. And I remember there was an opportunity to go to come to Germany, where I am now, interestingly enough. And 
I spent a month in Germany, and during that time, uh, met the founder of Transcendental Meditation, Maharishi Mahashyogi. And Maharishi had uh, started a group uh, that he called an experiment, but it was it was really intended to uh, create an influence that could be felt around the world. And it was it was. His invitation was for a group of men and separately a group of women who would spend most of their days in meditation. And so for the next 10 years, I was part of this group. And while we did some traveling around different parts of the world during that 10 years, for the most part, I would meditate, get up in the morning and start at 7 in the morning and break at lunch, have some lunch, have a little exercise after lunch and then meditate for another four hours or so in the afternoon and then have dinner and do some spiritual reading in the evening. And that was my life, seven days a week. You know? wow. And uh, and it was during that time also that I uh, I became interested in the Vedic literature of India and, and began to read uh, many of the Puranas and the Upanishads and different aspects of Vedic literature. And it was very interesting to me that in these very ancient writings, there were descriptions of times where what we call heaven, and, you know, I shared with you what I had grown up thinking heaven was. Heaven was some place where after you lived, if you were lucky, you lived 70 or 80 years, and then you died, and then if you didn't live a good life, you went to heaven, Right. Mm-hmm. But I came to understand heaven to have a different, in a different way, that um, that heaven was uh, and is a um, a different way of experiencing life, uh, a different functioning of consciousness, and that consciousness is not limited to a body or to a mind, but that consciousness is a universal experience which expresses itself as our individual natures. And in the in these ancient writings, I began to see that that there were these descriptions of of movement between the heavenly or celestial worlds and the earthly world and and, and or earth and back again. In fact, there were descriptions of how sometimes um, the celestial world there be, things going on there, and they would invite this king or that king from the earth to come and assist and so forth. And, and I, um, I didn't, it's taken me really quite a number of years, probably 30 years to kind of fully integrate what that means as my own ex- internal experience has deepened. But uh, that, that time and that experience was really the first birth of what today I call the Heaven on Earth project that you mentioned. Wow. So, and I have to ask, I mean, how do you, how do you transition from 10 years of that type of intensive meditation and then entering back into the quote unquote real world? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, for some people, it may be easier than it was for me, but I can tell you the first five years were pretty uh, rough, just to be honest with you. They there was a lot of, uh, I, I came off of those 10 years uh, having deep, profound inner experiences. And, and, and it took some time and some while for those experiences to be integrated in a way that 
I could effectively live in the world. Now, that's not to say that I didn't do things. I did many things. You know, I got married to Janet Bray Atwood, who subsequently became my business partner and the co-author of The Passion Test. But we were married for about five years. And those five years were a very difficult time for both of us. Not the, and, and for me, it was this time of trying to figure out how to adjust to a world that I hadn't been part of for quite a while. Right. And, and, you know, in the instructions of meditation, of TM at least, that one of the instructions is to come out slowly. That means to, after finishing meditation, to take two or three minutes to before opening the eyes and beginning to come back into activity and, and even to lie down for five or ten minutes after meditation, right? And I have to say that my own experience, if you imagine 10 years of meditation, it really was like one long meditation in many ways, right? Mm. And so if you take two or three minutes to come out after 20 minutes of meditation, you probably need like three to five years to come out <laughs> of 10 years <laughs> of deep meditation. And, um, and I didn't realize that I needed to, to give that space for that transition. So it, it, it took me about those five years. Then Janet and I got a divorce, but we stayed dear, dear friends. And uh, I, I took uh, a, a different position, different job, and was successful at that. And, and, then, um, and then the whole story came up, which is a fairly long story, but the brief version is that Janet called me one day about three years, uh, three years? Uh, no, about five years after we had been divorced, we'd stayed in touch. And I was living in California. She was in Iowa. And she said, Mark Victor Hansen and Robert Allen want me to partner with them. Now, Mark Victor Hansen and Robert Allen are both number one New York Times bestselling authors, right? And they were going to be working on a new book together and uh, wanted Janet to work on a project with them. And I said, gosh, Janet, congratulations. That's so fabulous. And, and she said, well, the only thing is they want me to write a business plan and to give it to them in three days. And you know I don't write business plans, so can you do it? <laughs> <laughs> and so somewhere along the way, I'd gotten an MBA, you know, and I'd learned how to write business plans. And but I said, Janet, there's no way you can write a business plan in three days. So I said, well, maybe we could create an outline of business plan. And she said, yeah, can we do that? And so I created a, an outline of a business plan and some rough financial numbers. And, and uh, then she asked me, she flew me out to Chicago to meet with Mark and Bob, and we had dinner with them. And about halfway through dinner, one of them said, and Janet, what is Chris's role in all of this? And uh, Janet kicks me under the table, which I now have learned at the time I didn't know. <laughs> I now learned that means don't say anything. And, uh, and she said, um, well, Chris and I are going to be partners on this project together. And they said, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's how Janet and I became business partners. And, and then a couple of, you know, some, you know, we, we worked with Mark and Bob for a year and then we helped Harv Ecker expand his programs into the U.S. And, and during that time, Janet had the inspiration to write this book called The Passion Test and, we published it or initially as an ebook and and gave teleconferences, which were the precursor of podcasts, you know. Mm-hmm. And we did teleconferences every month and and over the course of the next year sold five thousand ebooks and then Janet said, Well we rewrite this book with me and so we spent six months rewriting it, self published it, got lots of partners to help us promote it, and it went to number one on 
Amazon, actually on Barnes and Noble in an hour and a half, and then number one on Amazon about a day later, and stayed there for over a week. And on the basis of that, we were able to get one of the best literary agents in the in the business, and and ultimately uh, Penguin published the Passion Test uh, in both hardcover and softcover, and it became a New York Times bestseller. That's kind of our story. And since then, we started training Pashtist facilitators. And till today, there's over 1,500 Pashtist facilitators in more than 60 countries. Yeah. And, you know, I would really encourage people to check out the website, thepassiontest.com. It's it's pretty fun. You have a couple of different uh, questionnaires on there where people can get an idea of what their passion is like. You know, do they have a passionate life? Are they living their passion? And then you guys have a bunch of just products, you know, together to kind of help people move them more towards really finding what their passion is and being who they want to be in the world. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's it's fair to say today, April, that the passion test has become the number one tool used worldwide to discover passion and connect with purpose. Mm-hmm. But um, and some people would say, well, then why did you leave all that? Because as of December 31st of last year, I have turned over basically my responsibilities with the Passion Test, and Janet's the CEO of the Passion Test programs, continuing to expand them. She's gotten a fabulous reception in in Scandinavia and particularly in Japan. There are like two two hundred facilitators in Japan alone now. And but um, but I put that aside. I continue to consult with the Passion Test programs, but I'm really focused on this project of which I call the Heaven on Earth Project. Uh, and the, the ultimate expression of that is building uh, a series of resorts, the first one to be at Lago Maggiore in Italy, hopefully northern Italy, one of the most beautiful spots on earth, in my opinion, and to create environments where it's possible once again to reconnect earth and heaven. This is my goal. Yeah, so why don't we go into that a little bit more with this project that you have going on. I know that you're trying to raise some money. There's about 18 days left, um, and it looks like the goal is $50,000. And can you just explain the project a little bit more? I know you touched upon what's bringing you and motivating you to bring this project to connect heaven and earth, but let people know more about it. Absolutely. The... uh, $50,000 $50,000 will not accomplish this project, as you might guess, April. Um, $50,000, the crowdfunding campaign is really for the purpose of of getting the word out to people and to seeing what kind of reception it gets, just to be honest with you. They, um, we ultimately will need to go to investors and to, found, to members, founding members, uh, each of whom will invest $100,000 each as, to be members of this club, uh, of, the, of the Bayou Project, we call it. Um, but the crowdfunding campaign is to to see to what extent are people attracted to this concept and idea. And it has three parts, really. The first part is something that I hope will be accessible and exciting for everyone who's listening. And that is uh, a, a platform where anyone can go and share their passions, but not just their passions in the abstract, but a particular project that they are passionate about. And that the, and this platform 
this online platform will provide the basis whereby anybody can can connect with others, can attract people with the necessary skills and talents to help them realize that project where they can attract resources, where they can, can uh, connect with others who may be working on similar projects, and, and where through a series of steps of kind of steps of achievement that they can get access to knowledge, training, uh, uh, more resources, more more opportunities to to get their projects seen and heard on a on a broader scale. So this is the first part is really this passion project platform. It's called the Global Passion Network, and uh, and it's aimed at helping anyone to realize and make their passion project a reality. The second piece of, of the Heaven on Earth project is to bring together some of the top authors, speakers, and trainers to provide training to the members of the club, uh, both those who are participating in the Global Passion Network and those who have become full members of the, um, of the resort project. And, and the, these are people who are they're listed on our on our campaign page. The campaign page, by the way, is at createbeules.com, create, C-R-E-A-T-E, Bayul, which is B-E-Y-U-L-S.com, B-E-Y-U-L-S.com, create, Bayul, and I'll talk about what Bayuls are in just a moment, but um, they, so... These are people like uh, Phil Town, the number one author, uh, number one New York Times bestselling author of Rule Number One and Payback Time, uh, the the champion of the small investor, we could say, uh, expert in investments and and finance. Uh, Marcy Shymoff, the New York Times bestselling author, number one New York Times bestselling author of most of the women's books in the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, as well as Happy for No Reason and Love for No Reason. Um, Robert Scheinfeld, who's the number one uh, or the New York Times bestselling author of Busting Loose from the Money Game, has a very radical and different view of money and finances, which is which I've found to be incredibly liberating personally. Uh, people like um, Bobby DePorter, Bobby De, many people may not have heard of Bobby DePorter. She tends to stay a little bit under the uh, the radar, but she is the founder of the Quantum Learning Network. The creator of courses that have been taken at formative times in their careers by such people as Tony Robbins, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, uh, Jack Hanfield, and Mark Victor Hansen, Spencer Johnson, who wrote Who Moved My Cheese, uh, Ken Blanchard, who wrote uh, The One Minute Ma uh, Manager. A lot of really very successful people have taken Bobby's courses because we tend to call her the, the mother of accelerated learning, this kind of... Uh, wonderful learning system that she has uh, initiated and launched in school systems all over the country. She's also the co-founder of SuperCamp, where more than 70,000 kids have gone through this unique learning environment every every month. So there, there are many. Ultimately, we'll have 50 to 100 of these kind of authors and speakers People who are at the top of their industry. Another one of our, another one is um, Scott Hoffman, co-founder of Folio Literary Agency, who was uh, our literary agent and and one of the top literary agents in the world. And Joel Roberts, who used to be a uh, top broadcaster in the Los Angeles market, and and has gone on to be one of the top media coaches in the publishing industry. So, 
a lot of interesting people to learn from. That's the, mm-hmm. So this second part of the project is giving access to some of the best training uh, available, appropriate to different parts of where one is at different times in their life, whether it's being an entrepreneur or in business or, or working on one's relationship or, or dealing with health issues or spirituality, whatever it may be. Our intent is to have the, some of the best trainers and, and teachers available in the world in these different areas. So that's the second piece. First piece, the Global Passion Network, this online platform to realize passion projects. The second one, access to world-class training. And then the third one is really where my heart most is, to be honest, which is creation of very unique and beautiful resorts, these places which will be uh, bayuls in the sense that the Dalai Lama has described them. Bayul is a term that comes from Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, in that tradition, bayuls were first described uh, in the 8th century as being hidden valleys in the Himalayas where uh, the righteous would retire when the chaos of the world became too great. And Bales are really a description of sacred spaces, sacred places. And uh, the Dalai Lama has described uh, Bales um, as... Bales are places where, uh, uh, not to escape the world, but to enter it more deeply. And uh, these are sacred spaces that allow one to dive into oneself to be able to go more deeply into who one is and, and what is the nature of, uh, of one's own uh, life. And that's why, you know, for me, my life has really been about understanding what is the nature of life. And I think I'm not alone in this. Uh, the, the Dalai Lama said the qualities inherent in such places uh, reveal the interconnectedness of all life. And see, I'm trying to find the quote, interconnect us of all life and deepen awareness of the hidden regions of the mind and spirit. I love that description. Uh, It's um, and that's what we intend to create is places which are refuges from the craziness of the world where members, uh, whether whether members of the of the online platform or members of the learning community, uh, which I have called the Bayou Club and Resorts that these will be places that people can come, can retire, reflect, and rejuvenate. Each one will have Ayurvedic clinics, uh, uh, Ayurvedic health centers that are part of them. They will be built using ancient principles of building in accord with the laws of nature. They will also incorporate modern principles of building in the most sustainable and life-supporting ways. And uh, the, the intent of these places is to create uh, spaces that that when you come there, it's as if you have entered into heaven, at the very least, right? It's as if you have entered a new place, a new way of of living and being in the world, and and associated with these places over time, we will have groups who are practicing a meditation and ancient uh, ancient practices, ancient methods for creating peace and calm in the world. The, the purpose of these resorts ultimately is to serve as transmitters that bring uh, peace and calmness into the world in general and 
allow the world to step into this new age that uh, that many of us believe we're on the juncture at at the junction point of right. Wow. Well, it definitely sounds beautiful. I think I know where I'm going to go to retire. <laughs> <laughs> Good. But I also I also find it really interesting how you know with your story it almost seems like you're coming back around to this. You know, in your early 20s, you were kind of creating this place for people to live and, you know, in a totally different way. And yet you're also returning back to this place of peace and, you know, kind of cultivating some of maybe that same feeling that you received during that 10 years of TM. Um, so that that's really interesting. Now, April, when I said retire, I should be clear, I didn't mean retire like when you're done working, now you go off to a retirement community. This, these are not retirement communities. They're, these are more like resorts. And, um, and the purpose is, is that you would go to a place like this maybe once uh, or twice for a week or two a year. Something gotcha. Like that, okay. Right? <laughs> well, either yeah. way, I will. I, I'd like to show up to retire there. <laughs> yeah, retire from the world. Retire for, from the world for a couple of weeks. <laughs> well, and 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 part of the vision of these places is that they they would also be places where we would have ongoing courses. For example, my one of the one of the patrons, one of the teachers of uh, of the Heaven on Earth Project is Roger Hamilton, who the founder of the Genius U Network, who. Um, has wonderful programs for entrepreneurs, and one of our intentions is to, in collaboration with him and his uh, iLab program, which allows uh, entrepreneurs or burgeoning entrepreneurs to come and spend a month at a time getting mentored and actually doing their their business. You know, it's a place so that we would use these resorts for that as well. People who wanted to step into a, a lifestyle that they could do from anywhere would be able to bring their business ideas and concepts, work with mentors at the resorts, and and then actually work on their business while they're being mentored as well. So Roger has a resort in Bali. He has uh, he's in the process of creating another one in South Africa. We're creating the one in Italy. So we intend to create a network of these kind of resorts where uh, entrepreneurs can come and and learn how to. Be, create a business that can be done anywhere. Yeah, and I can only assume that being in that type of environment just really helps the creativity of the entrepreneurs and getting their mind in a place, um, you know, without having the stress of the world and trying to figure out ideas and projects, but that your what you're trying to set up will really help to facilitate that. Yeah, uh, that in fact is the whole point: is to create an environment where creativity thrives. That 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 to me is the meaning behind the Dalai Lama's quote. You know that these places are not places to escape the world, but to enter it more deeply. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a place to be able to go deep and to be able to to come up with ideas and concepts and to express one's creativity in ways that, frankly, may not be possible in other environments that uh, where there's more entropy, if you will, in the environment. Right. Well, we're so glad that we made this connection and we wish you a lot of luck on your projects. And would you just like to let our listeners know exactly again, one more time where they can go to help support this project, the Heaven on Earth Project? Absolutely. So the the campaign is on Indiegogo, uh, Indiegogo.com, I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. But you can go directly to the campaign page with the URL createbayules.com. So create, C-R-E-A-T-E, 
Bayules is B as in boy, E-Y-U-L-S as in Sam, dot com. CreateBayules.com. That'll take you to the page. You can read all about what we're doing. And, and really, this $50,000 is for the purpose that we've created some wonderful perks. Uh, there, there are great things uh, by, by contributing to the campaign. People are able to get... Uh, some incredible online training courses and and other things for half or less of their normal cost. So I hope that those will be enticements as well. But uh, but supporting this project with any amount helps to demonstrate to the people who will ultimately finance the larger share of the project that this is something that you'd like to see happen. So we're grateful for any support that we can get. Absolutely. Well, Lots of luck. Sounds like you're doing Thanks. great work, and we definitely like to follow up with you maybe in a year or so and see how things are going. I would love that. Thank you so much, April. Thanks, Chris. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at com or send us a tweet at the past series. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.